Hey, friends and listeners, this is Amory Zanzel, and you're listening to Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA Plus Stories Podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm Barb Rowlandson, and Emery, we are now deep into season four of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast, and congratulations on what has turned out to be just a fantastic season so far. And no thanks to you, Barb Rowlandson, my brand new producer who is kicking ass in this podcast. <laughs> so I want to thank Barb and all of our guests and listeners who make this podcast so special. If you're new to this podcast, let me fill you in a bit on what we do here at Coming Out and Beyond. This is a podcast devoted to sharing stories of real people, primarily women, trans, and non-binary folks who have made the brave step of coming out maybe early in life or maybe later in life. And later in life, it's a subjective term. I mean, we have guests on the podcast that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. And they're from all walks of life, and they've discovered in their life's journey that they aren't quite as straight as they originally thought they were. And the lovely Anne-Marie here, our podcast founder and host, brings her signature compassion, wisdom, and insight as she interviews guests, creating a safe space for them to share their stories. And Barb, our podcast producer and occasional co-host and guest, and maybe in the future, a host, joins us regularly for the first time in season four adding fun, dimension, and a different perspective to topics surrounding the coming out later in life process. So if you're someone who is later in life and early in the coming out process, here is where you are gonna find inspiration and some great advice and a glimpse into the joy of what it means to come into your authentic sexuality. So relax, kick your shoes off, grab a cup of coffee or tea, or maybe your favorite libation, put your headphones on and join us for the next half hour or so to listen to another great true story about coming out later in life and what lies beyond. I am so excited to welcome to the show today, Leela Sinha. They are our gen, do you use they, them pronouns? I use either they, them or see them, just like it says. Okay. Leela Sinha is a genderqueer, queer as fuck entrepreneur. Hey, we are the same person. Z is intense, spiritually grounded, real, funny, compassionate, and mostly interested in creating a better world with more pleasure and less pain. To that end, Z coaches and consults to uplift intense people. If you're told you're too much, that's you and create leadership companies and systems where the bottom line is robust and everyone needs get met all the time, even yours. Leela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, Leela appeared on the screen and I saw the Rev in front of uh, uh, Z's name and I was like, oh my gosh. I'm a reverend too. So I'm very excited to have Leela on the show today. And so Leela, tell me your story. That's such a big question. Where would you like me to start? Well, since this is about coming out and beyond, mm-hmm. let's talk about that. Okay. So the funny thing is that the longer I live, the earlier I start my coming out story. If you had asked me in 1995 when I came out, I would have said last year. Mm. However, since then, I've also come out as genderqueer, trans, transmasculine, mm-hmm. and 
because of that, I now rewind my story and rewind my story looking for the first moment when I knew that I wasn't really a girl. And so we're back to like somewhere between age two and five. Wow. But that often happens, right? When we come out, we, I find that people like start realizing having recovered memory of, oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> And what often happens is it's in the communal storytelling spaces, which I think are regrettably harder to come by now than they were when I came out in the mid nineties, mm-hmm. uh, partially because we're, we're so deeply integrated into society in ways that we weren't, although we're certainly seeing some struggles around that these days. Absolutely. Um, so you were two to five. Tell me about that. Yeah, so as a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, I was just very clear about who I was and what I wanted and um, how I wanted to be in the world. But my mom was a 1970s, like, feminist, joined the League of Women Voters, you know, and and so she inadvertently supported that. She dressed me in very gender-neutral clothing. She maybe went a little further she dressed me in gender neutral clothing and she like didn't want me to have any representational toys at all. So no Barbies, no dolls. All I had was uh, like bristle blocks and tinker toys and Legos before Legos came in kits. So it was just a bunch of bricks in the box and you could build something. And, and, you know, her idea was that this would develop my imagination. I think she may regret having developed my imagination as well as she did, but here we are. So when I was five, I have this memory of we're all lining up for, you know, class and they would line us up as one line of boys and one line of girls. And, and I would be standing there in line chatting with the other kids in line and being like, yeah, there's not that much difference between boys and girls. We're really all the same. Mm-hmm. I'm five. How did your uh, classmates respond to that? I don't actually recall. I think they just thought I was weird. I also, my, my best friends in that, at that time were boys and it was probably, I don't know, another two years or so before I started to make friendships with girls, Mm -hmm. mostly because girls and boys weren't talking to each other because there was this whole cooties thing. I don't know if kids still do that, but it was so weird. There was a real, um, I think we're, we look about the same age. So I think there was a real, like if you grew up in the seventies, you know, there was a real dividing line between what girl activities were and what boy activities were. And I completely understand that. I, I have a story, you know, when, when I was in fifth grade, um, they showed the movie, you know, which was about girls getting their periods. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like, when the boys asked what it was about, I was like, oh, they told us about like that. And I got in such trouble with my female classmates because I sort of like spilled the secret and I'm like who cares (laughs) like I mean really you know and I remember even at that time being like you know this isn't a big deal we don't have to have it like this big mystery and stuff like that so I'm not a mystery I'm not a mystery we can be not mysteries together we can be curious together yeah absolutely so you know so it wasn't really until a couple of years later when you started to have friends with girls and so what's the next part of that story I was always a little strange I never fit into any of the boxes and that was challenging but it also really served me So because I never fit in and I never met the social standard and I never interacted in the ways people expected me to, and I was interested in things that nobody else was interested in, um, 
I now suspect neurodivergence, but at the time I didn't know that. And, and so it meant that when it came time to think about dating and sexuality and who I might be interested in romantically, I knew that I might eventually be interested in boys, perhaps, but I also felt absolutely no compunction about being like, not right now. Mm-hmm. That looks mm-hmm. like a whole lot of drama I don't need. Mm-hmm. So I actually deliberately chose not to even think about dating until I was almost done with high school. Mm-hmm. So then, and then did when you I date did, boys, <laughs> when I did think about, I did start by dating boys, and I started by, but but I was very like, I don't want to do this in public. I don't want to do this. Like I don't want this like social judgment that comes with public dating. It's like, it's none of anybody's business. I'm an introvert. I'm shy. Like, mm. <laughs> and, oh. and, and I'm Demi. Mm-hmm. And so I only formed close and romantic relationships with people I was friends with. And that, that was true pretty much. That's always been true. Since you've come out, have you now looked back on that and see that the reason why you had such strong opinions about dating is because you were probably dating the wrong gender? It was never the wrong gender. Mm -hmm. I'm queer. That's the word Mm -hmm. I claim. Mm -hmm. And I fall in love with people and not the packages they come in. Mm -hmm. I understand. And, And so it wasn't that I should not have been dating a particular gender. It was that I did not play any of the gender games the way they were written in the script. And so the only people that I dated pretty much consistently were people who also did not play by the script. Pretty cool. Was it cool? Um, It was, it was. I mean, certainly I've had my share of relationship problems with Mm -hmm. all kinds of genders of people, but, but dating people was more about, Hey, I really like you. We've known, I've known you for a couple of years or longer. And now I'm starting to have these romantic feelings or these sexual feelings. And how do we, Mm -hmm. How do we want to proceed together? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I learned that from having gone through AYS when I was in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. So stop, rewind. I was very active in the Unitarian Universalist Church. Um, my, my mom was a Sunday school teacher. My father was on the Buildings and Grounds Committee. My mom was actually raised Unitarian, which is fairly rare in our denomination to have somebody who's multi-generationally mm-hmm. Unitarian Universalist. Not impossible, but rarer. And, and especially rare to then have people of my generation have stayed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting into um, youth group and young adult leadership from AYS. So AYS is about your sexuality. It is the predecessor to our about your sex. Oh, about your sexuality. Okay. Got it. Okay. So AYS is a curriculum. It's a religious education curriculum meant to be taught as in Sunday school, although it can be taught in other places called About Your Sexuality. Now, AYS has been superseded by a newer curriculum called Our Whole Lives. Um, And Our Whole Lives is a lifespan sexuality education program that was jointly developed with the UCC. So I don't know if you're familiar with it, but- I'm um, not, no. So so when we went as a denomination, when we went to develop that curriculum, we kind of looked at what had worked and not worked with AYS. We decided that it would make sense to team up with another liberal religious organization and the UCC was amenable. So what it is now is a series of like the center of the curriculum, which is the informational part. And then there's a religious supplement for each of our denominations so that we can add in our, our kind of religious values overlay. Um, 
so this uh, the AYS curriculum that you went in how can I you can you tell me what year like that was like 19 no eight 1980, 1988, 87, 88. Okay. So you were a young adult then. No, and I was, I, AYS was for eighth graders. Okay. So you were four, 13, 14. So what did yeah. it teach you? You said you, you have a lot of, you give it a lot of credit. So what did it teach you? I'm, I'm just really curious. And was there any talk about, um, you know, non-straight yes. relationships? Yeah, so it was developed starting in the 1970s by a group of Unitarian Universalist ministers and, you know, and assorted other experts. And it it was an incredibly explicit, clear, and it, but it, clear sexuality education curriculum, but it wasn't just plumbing, right? It wasn't just right. have a slot B. It was also how to communicate what language do we use? How does that language affect how we think about our sexuality? How do we do this in groups? What is peer pressure and how does that impact us? Like all of that conversation was built into this curriculum. Wow, it sounds like a very powerful curriculum. It was. And the only way I would have been satisfied is, is as it has happened, moving forward into an even more robust curriculum. Now we teach early elementary, late elementary, middle school, high school, and I think there are two levels of adult curriculum. Wow. So so we really do lifespan and we're in the process of overhauling it because of course it's out of date because it's always out of date. <laughs> um, but, but, but it gave me the, the skills to communicate with someone to say, hey, what do you want? And hear what they wanted without judgment to be able to say what I wanted and expect to be heard without judgment mm -hmm. to be able to say, hey, what are you into? And and there was, there was a, like a whole section on queerness. On, on, you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual, that was all the categories we had in the 80s, but, but, you know, talking about a little bit about trans identities, again, there wasn't a lot available, but what we had, we, we had. And so I became the go-to person in my circle of friends and acquaintances, like, even though they didn't, there were a lot of people who weren't my friends, but they knew I had information about sex. And so they would come to me in high school and be like, I got a question. And I'd be like, I don't have the answer. Let me go ask the grown-ups at church. I'll get back to you. So what's amazing to me as, you know, uh, like all the Catholic church does about sex is shame you. <laughs> I mean, it's like shame, shame, shame. So a lot of the work I do with the later in life people that are, you know, come out from conservative religions, I have to unpack, we have to unpack all the things that, that we've been taught as women. And one of my partners was raised Catholic. So, I'm so you get it. You get it. Yeah. And um, before we can even get to the sexuality piece and like, what a gift that was for you. Like what, like I can't imagine, I might, I say to myself, how would my life have been different if I had been taught that instead of being taught, you know, what I was taught. So that's pretty, that's really cool. Yeah. It was a huge pivotal part of my, so I still thought of myself as an ally but mm -hmm. it never occurred to me not to think of myself as an ally because nobody in my immediate world was telling me I shouldn't be. I wasn't really listening to my parents at that point. We weren't talking about it, mm -hmm. but they were taking me to church mm -hmm. and this is what I was learning in church. And mm -hmm. there were, you know, gay and lesbian people in church and leadership positions kind of visibly everywhere. The UUA performed, well, the Unitarians performed the first recorded ceremony of union that we know about in 1958. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've been on this track for a minute and you know the AIDS crisis was right there with right. us and we were talking about it in church 
Mm-hmm. And most likely being advocates for yeah. for queer people who were struggling with AIDS. Yeah. Um, and when when we went on our um, coming of age trip to Boston, because we were in Connecticut, so it wasn't a long trip, and all of Unitarianism kind of centers its origin point in Boston. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more complicated trans- than that, but it's that's where a, headquarters yeah. is. Yeah. Transcendentalists, right? Were they the formers of, yeah, like it's um, the Walden Pond guy. <laughs> yeah, Thoreau. I'm sorry, my, my American religious education is failing me right now, <laughs> Leela. I'm sorry, but I know it's from there. <laughs> You're fine. Yeah, so it was Emerson and Thoreau and Ballou yeah. and mm-hmm. all of those people. And and so that we had a, a practice of every year, the eighth graders would go to Boston and kind of see all the historic sites. And the minister would take us, he really liked to like quote, famous people at the at their grave or at the church where they used to preach or whatever. We went to see, you know, the Baltimore Unitarian Church, uh, which I got to see it uh, sometime later was, you know, the, the church where universal, where the Unitarian, like the sermon that started Unitarianism happened at the Baltimore church. So we would take field trips, but this, this one particular field trip, we were standing outside Arlington Street Church, which in Boston was like the epicenter of it, it was known as the gay church. Mm-hmm. And um, and outside there were people tabling, you know, kind of selling stuff on the street with pins and buttons and, and backpacks and patches and stuff. And I picked up a pin that said silence equals death. Mm-hmm. And I wore it on my backpack for the rest of educational time, you know, from eighth grade all the way through college. And nobody batted an eyelash. Mm-hmm. Nobody thought that was weird. So you you go through college and experimental time or no? So I came out in my second year of college. Okay. Um, so can I, I ask you, since you identify as genderqueer now, um, what did you come out as? Because we didn't have a lot of the language that you're using right now. For people that don't know, like in 1992, <laughs> there was no genderqueer. So what in did you come out? In what 2006, there wasn't genderqueer. Yeah. The language is very, it's sometimes the language in the queer community, especially around um, non-binary and trans folks change so quickly. Sometimes it's it's hard to keep up unless you're directly into that community. So, yeah. um, what did you come out with? Come out at come come so, out in nineteen ninety. At the time, I was still identifying as female, and I come came out as bisexual. Okay, those were the okay. words that I had immediately, and I almost almost instantly picked up queer instead of bisexual because I really didn't like the implied binary. I know that there's much more complex conversation about that at now, but yeah, we, but yeah. But queer was really the current, the word of currency at the time. Uh, I had just taken the first queer studies class, one of the two first queer studies classes offered by my college. I was Mm -hmm. at Carleton College and we had a class called Amazon's Valkyries, Naiad's Dykes. Lesbian literature from Sappho to the 1920s, and it was being taught. Where did you go to school? I'm curious. Carleton College. Oh, okay. Oh, and oh, oh, I know where that is. I have, I've have. I've, yeah, I have young kid friends that went there. So yeah. <laughs> um, and it was being taught advocationally by a Russian professor. Wow. And so she was super into film. She was super into this kind of historic 1920s lesbian culture exploration. She was rumored to be straight, question mark. A lot of people had questions about that. I still don't have the answer to that one. And it was taught, so in the same term as a dance class, that was the other first queer, that's why I'm like, it's one of two mm-hmm. first queer studies classes taught at school. Mm-hmm. So it was through that, that I kind of went, 
Hmm. And then I started hanging out with somebody who was the campus dyke. And I, I think she would still probably say that about herself. And it was sitting with her and hearing her sort of opine on the various attractiveness of the various people that walked by in the student center or whatever. I was like, oh, I have opinions about that too. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And coming out, the moment of coming out was literally like, huh, yeah, I think I'm also into girls. Okay. Well, that makes, yeah. And and also too, you, I'm, you've had like such a, a life up to that point where it it was okay. It would, that was like, okay, whatever. You know? yeah, I was like, I'm not telling my parents until it's important, but like anybody else I told, they were like, yeah, that makes sense. Please pass the salt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, can I ask you something? You yeah. know, I have noticed that queer is like, I, I call myself queer as well. I really thought it was more of a like early 2000s word, you know, the reclamation of that word. Do you think it was because you were in academia that the word was so prevalent there and you called yourself queer? Because like my wife who came out in 1985, you know, she's fine with the word now, but still sometimes it's hard for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think language is generational. So another piece of, of background for me is that I now co-moderate a transmasculine discord with about 1700 members worldwide. There, It's me and like eight or nine maybe 12 other moderators. It's, we have a big mod team, but we need one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the things about that is that I have a constantly like active sample of about two to 300 people, their experiences, their opinions, their presence and queerness or not, because often people come into transmasculinity from straightness and that is a wild ride. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm you know, we're, we're in this place now where queer is like, a lot of people don't like queer. They're like unreclaiming it Mm -hmm. and, or they feel like it's not specific enough. We're in this moment of identity politics where specificity of of identities are really important. You know, in the, in the people of color community, we often hear people saying, oh, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't want to be lumped in with other people of color. I want my particular experience um, lifted out or specified, you know, black folks often don't want to be in a BIPOC conglomeration. They're like, no, no, my black experience is specific. Indigenous people are like my indigenous experience is specific. specific, And now in the API community, Asian Pacific Islander, we're like Asian Pacific Islander. What kind of a weird conglomeration is that? Like, right. Absolutely. Like the, (laughs) yeah, I I get that. I mean, you guys, people are from such different places and your experiences are all different. Right. And we experience marginalization very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we want to specify like, this is my experience, this is your experience. But as we know from organizing from, you know, generations back, sometimes having a collective identity is also useful. Mm-hmm. We're specific and we're collective. And that's, and, and I came of age in the moment of queer history when a queer collective identity was extremely important because of the AIDS epidemic, because we were coming into this moment where it wasn't just gay men, it was everybody. And it had to not just be gay men anymore because they were all dying. Mm -hmm. The generation directly above me was basically dead. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Years later, I had the opportunity to do a funeral for someone who had survived, who had gotten AIDS and survived for years and years and years after most of his peers had died. And oh my God, like, because that moment in history was so formative. I had a a son 
when I was working as a hospice chaplain, I had a son of a patient um, and he was actually, he was probably 2012, 13, and he was a survivor. He never got AIDS, but it was his generation. He's a, he was a professor at a college Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, listening to his stories was so unbelievably profound. And um, how many people that he saw die as a young man, you know, mm-hmm. um, on my first, if you, if you want to hear, a, a, I'm just saying this to the listeners, um, in the first season, um, the last episode with Judy, she's a lesbian that was living in San Francisco at the time. And she did a lot of work with the men that past and her story is amazing. So we had to unify because, you know, that generation is dying. And, you know, I think it had such a profound effect on the LGBTQ community, also in the sense of what happened afterwards in the sense of visibility and changing things um, for a lot of us. So you come out and act, you know, you came out and like, hey, yeah, I'm bisexual. <laughs> yeah. I I called, did... I called my fiance at the time and I was like, hey, I think I'm bisexual. And he was like, yeah, I was wondering when you were going to figure that out. <laughs> so what happened next? I was just, you know, living life, queer, <laughs> doing my thing. I presented as, I think I, it gave me space to lean into presenting a little more masculine. Um, mm-hmm. But I never never took on like the full on butch identity because I didn't feel like I fit the stereotypes well enough to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so coming out, you know, finding my identity and then being like, yeah, don't fit here either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, very, very, I, I live my life in the liminal spaces. And that was so it sounds like, like a lot of people, but, but I think that's sort of typical because there are people that I have worked with people that come out and it's about like at first they think it's about sexual orientation, but then as time comes on, goes on, they were like, oh, this is more about gender for me. I, I've had several people that um, have come out as transmasculine after, you know, starting in a late in life lesbian group. So mm-hmm. I think because I think now with the next generations or the generations that are maybe young millennials or Gen Z's. There is talk about gender so much more, but I think for our generation, or you're actually younger than me, but for your generation and the generation before you, it was more about sexual orientation. Like there was just the LGBT at that point. So I think that's I super mean, Yeah, I when think when I came out, it was LGB. Yeah, no T. <laughs> Though there was plenty of T people around, but oh yeah, was, it, yeah, it was there, but it wasn't in the list. It wasn't in the in the public consciousness. It wasn't in the discourse yet. Mm-hmm. So you started to realize that, wait a minute, it's, this is uh, uh, yeah, maybe, a, you know, it's more than sexual orientation. You know, I didn't really think about it beyond, you know, I got really into reading about, about gender presentation within the queer women's community. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, I lived in Minneapolis for a little over a year. And um, so I had access to the original Amazon books, um, the Amazon feminist co-op bookstore. Oh, wow. That's funny. And, uh, you know, there was this moment where 
this is like a classic coming out moment where I decided I wanted to cut my hair. I had always had hair like down past my waist because Mm -hmm. in part because of my Indian heritage, that was a very like normal thing Mm -hmm. for me to have. And then at some point I was like, you know what? I've been talking about cutting my hair for a few years. I'm coming up, I'm getting ready to go to seminary. I just want to try this. So Mm -hmm. I had already interviewed at seminary, but I hadn't gone yet. Mm-hmm. And in that winter between interviewing and, and actually going down to Chicago, I got someone to cut my hair for me and I buzzed it to half an inch long. Mm-hmm. And it was transformative because it was the first time I looked in the mirror and recognized myself. And then I went back to the Amazon feminist co-op bookstore where I had been <laughs> shopping for months and I got treated totally differently and it broke my heart. How so? Can you say more? When I went in there with my long braid, even if I was buying, you know, like queer erotic writing or, you know, sexual assault recovery material, you know, like the kinds of things that you buy from a feminist co-op, I I got like perfectly reasonable customer service. Mm -hmm. I didn't notice anything was wrong. Mm -hmm. They would like, I would take my books up to the register. They'd say, how would you like to pay? I would give them my card or my cash and they would check me out because this was the this was the 90s so you know I guess this was the early 2000s so you know cash was still a thing and 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 I would leave the store with my purchases and I thought that was normal I went in with my cut hair and suddenly I got eye contact I got conversation I got I'm very bad at telling whether I'm being flirted with but it might have been happening I got Mm -hmm. so much more engagement and conversation Hmm. I actually thought you were going to tell me something different but that is pretty amazing. So all of a sudden you were being seen as a queer woman. Yeah. All of a sudden I was recognizable. Yes. I How don't know why feel? buying queer erotica in a queer <laughs> bookstore was not recognizable behavior. I mean, I do, right? Because people have stereotypes and people well, make up but stories also, about Yes. Right. And also too. I wasn't going in there with a clergy collar on. I wasn't ordained yet. Yeah. But women love butch presenting women. That's also the thing. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, that's, I am, that's my attraction. You know, my, Mm -hmm. my wife is a masculine of center. I love butchers. (laughs) I love them. I think they're so freaking beautiful. And so I think that, I mean, I'm wondering if that's what happened is there was like a lot of women in there that were feminists and possibly lesbian. (laughs) Um, All of a sudden this butch, you know, you looked more butch. And so Oh, <laughs> but it's I, funny because the only thing that changed was my hair. It was it was particularly impactful because at the very same moment when I would go into like a rest stop bathroom or an airport bathroom or public washroom and bump into someone who is South Asian, they no longer recognized me. They wanted to like scoot their kids away from me. They didn't recognize me as South Asian anymore. When I had a long braid, they all recognized me as South Asian and be like, say, say hello to the nice auntie. And, and so I lost a community and gained a community. And I knew that was going to happen. Like I was absolutely aware of what I was doing. And I was like, well, I just want to cut my hair and I'm not going to let, you know, that public identity affect whether I can cut my hair or not. I'm not doing that. You know, in the same vein. I've lived, I, you know, I came out late. I came out at 50. I lived a, like a straight life with a husband and kids. Wow. That's a journey. Yeah. Oh yeah. You should read my stuff. <laughs> and, um, and so I was 52 when I came out 
I was married 27 years to my now ex-husband. I've been with my wife seven years now. We got married a couple of years ago. And how I get treated is, and I'm in the South now versus being in Connecticut. We're both from Connecticut. Um, How I get treated, there is noticeable just for difference. When I was, when it, like we go to Chico's (laughs) and um, because, you know, I'm of that age and I like their clothes Mm -hmm. and they're comfortable. Sure. (laughs) And we, but I, but also too, like I noticed they are and they see me with my wife. Mm-hmm. They're polite, but they make no effort to connect with me the way they did when I was, a, you know, just a straight presenting woman. I talked about my my daughter was getting married, so that I was trying I was trying to make conversation, you know, and um, polite, but I could feel the. So my wife, who has been out for a gazillion million years, doesn't see that right we don't notice it because we never had it right and but I notice it and I think it's a superpower (laughs) because there is the privilege of living as a straight person and if you've never lived as a straight person you just think it's normal so that's what I thought you were going to talk about but it's really interesting how how we present and how we perceive really really does change how people treat us and it it's does. pretty uh, it's pretty like it's cr- amazing because you still feel like the same person inside in a lot of ways you know but it is really amazing how people like treat us based on how our hair is or who our who our partner is that we're walking into with you know what was striking to me is that I had never been treated as an insider because I probably because I'm brown because like I said I never really fit the social molds so so I went from not having any place where I was an insider to having a place where I was an insider. Mm-hmm. Because even in Indian communities, first of all, if you're queer in South Asian, that's a whole complicated situation. Um, although there are a few people, when I, was, when I was traveling in India, I was in India for eight months when I was 24. And um, there's a singer named Falguni Patak who I took one look and I'm like, she's gotta be queer, mm-hmm. but she wasn't out. And mm-hmm. I wasn't about to like even ask my relatives mm-hmm. if they thought, you know, maybe because that wasn't a conversation they were having in 2001 in India. Mm-hmm. She's out now. Mm-hmm. I saw an article the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this like picking, noticing, finding the, those, those queer folk moments, but not actually being inside the South Asian community, not actually being inside any group of women ever like I smell funny to women like not not literally but like there's this thing where I just I don't play girl well and I never did Mm -hmm. and I think probably your wife has the same experience Mm -hmm. you use the word Mm -hmm. wife does she use the word wife yeah we use she loves the word wife because he was so so excited to be able to get married (laughs) (laughs) she says wife when you don't even need to say it so I think probably your wife has may have a similar experience of like mm-hmm. just when your gender is masculine of center, whether you identify as as girl or woman or not, you don't play the same way. You don't you don't follow the same scripts, and 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 then you grow up and you're like, well, I still don't follow the same script. So here we are. I'm not sure with with Tan. Her name is Tanda. Um, 
because she also grew up Southern. Mm, She's a Southern girl. She's a Southern woman. I would never have survived the South. Yeah. And so she did everything like she, you know, it wasn't really until she got into the lesbian community that she really started to present more, Mm. more, more masculine of center and stuff like that. Um, But there's a whole different animal when you've grown up in the South and now having lived in the South and worked with a lot of Southern women, there's a, a, there's layers that you and I from New England don't have. Yeah, no, I have, I have Southern friends and I'm, and they're like, why don't you come to the South? And I'm like, because I am a Yankee and I'm always going to be a Yankee. And there is no way that I could possibly navigate those layers of social strata. High five, girl. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and it's High like five. no shade. I know, <laughs> yeah. that, I know that the South is a rich and beautiful place. Yes, it is. A lot to offer. I would die. I would literally die, but I would also metaphorically die. Well, you know, it's really interesting. And we're getting off the topic here, but I love talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what is really interesting is watching how my wife is treated in the South as a, a masculine of sin. Like, like they literally don't even know she exists. They don't look, I mean, they don't look at her. They don't talk to her mm-hmm. and she's quite used to that. So she doesn't care anymore, but it's really, really interesting watching that. And because I'm more femme presenting, a lot of times people t- just don't assume I'm straight, right? Until she shows up. And then they know, oh, she isn't. And it's been a very interesting experience being in the South, but she still has a lot of those Southern tendencies. Like it, she just does. It It was, yeah. in her mother was a Southern woman. <laughs> I mean, you, you learn whatever culture you grow up in. Absolutely. I grew up at, in the suburbs of New York city. I have, I am in my bones. I have New York city culture, even though I didn't oh, grow up in too. New York proper, but you know, that whole like, well, that person may be weird, but there are weird. Yes. Like I'm going to mess with them, but nobody else gets to mess with them. Like that mm-hmm. thing feels very at home to me. You know? And, but I do want to say as a late in life lesbian coming South was really good because there's so many women in the South that come out later. Mm-hmm. And I have found my Southern lesbians that my wife, her group of friends, I'm the only, except for one other person, I'm the only one that has children or who've mm-hmm. ever been married to the man. Most of, a lot of them are gold, you know, what we call gold star. Gold star lesbians. Yeah, which I hate. Uh, I have uh, opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but let's not go there. Um, and, but they don't claim that. I'm just ex- describing them. And they have been nothing but loving and welcoming and kind to me. So I have with the women I've worked with a lot of times when they are on the coast and they come out later in life, it's sometimes hard to break into the community. And they oftentimes find that um, because a lot of the people that like, especially like in the cities of Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, going down the coast and and, and, and the East Coast as well, you know, the gays flee to the cities. So a lot of times the people that are out have been out for a really, really long time. And so then a lot of times there's a lot of resistance to the people that are like newer to the community that have been married and stuff like that. I find that people who will go to, are in the South um, are much more like, oh, come on, join us. You want to join <laughs> well, We need people. <laughs> I've lived in urban and very rural areas. I've lived mm-hmm. in a town, I lived in towns that were less than a thousand people. 
and I've mm-hmm. lived in cities mm-hmm. like Chicago, Ottawa, mm-hmm. San Francisco, well, Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, and my experience is that the more variety and numbers we have, the pickier we are about who we hang out. So if you live in a town of a thousand people, all the queers are talking to each other. You know why? Because there are 10. (laughs) Which is like it was in Minneapolis when I lived in Minneapolis in 2001, 2002. There were, you know, the queer women's community was small enough Mm -hmm. we kind of all knew each other it was we were still in that situation where you stay friends with your exes Mm -hmm. because they are going to be at the next potluck and they probably slept with your best friend before you and they're probably going to sleep with your other best friend after you so you're just going to have to figure this out Leela I got to introduce you to my wife she (laughs) she goes there was one mimeograph sheet and exactly if you do make it to the lesbian dance and 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 the exact she says the exact same thing exact same thing like yeah you know, she once went to a dance and four of her exes were all sitting at the same table. <laughs> yeah. If you dated a lot, you dated everybody in town. Yeah, and, absolutely. And you could not do the thing that we do now in the queer community a little bit and uh, straight people have apparently been doing forever, which is avoiding your exes. Mm-hmm. You, you, you couldn't do it. And now we can do it. And my if joke about living- If you're in a living, big city, if you're in a big city. Right. And my joke about living in, in uh, you, we can also do that on the internet. Mm -hmm. we have the internet which is the biggest city Mm -hmm. um but but like my joke about living in the bay area is that the like queer bears who like to fuck on tuesdays have their own club and like that's (laughs) like it's so specific and and it's so getting into those groups is a lot harder you know people are and people have been burned if you if you've been out for longer you've had more opportunities to be burned for being queer like with somebody oh, yeah. like, oh, I think I want to experiment. Absolutely. Like, I don't want to be your experiment. Like well, go and figure out your identity and then come back and talk to me later. Like you're cute, but no. Well, you know, it's so actually talking to you, Lila, is, is so affirming for me because all those things you've said, I've written articles and stuff like that. Because the they're the op the th- <laughs> the thing is is that a lot of the women that identify as lesbian early um or or not straight, um you know, they're, they're scared because they have been with a woman that's like with questioning her sexuality and they've gotten deeply, deeply hurt. Right. They've then been dumped. So the woman can go back to her nice, safe, straight looking relationship because being queer was too hard. Yes, absolutely. And and there are so many layers of betrayal built into that experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most people who go through it once or twice, unless they really have a thing for newbies, most people who go through it once or twice are done. They're done. They're like, listen, unless you've at least had dated three women before me, I'm not interested. Well, and that's, you know, that's really interesting because my wife never dated someone coming out in the closet before, but I also was somebody who wasn't going back. Once I was out, I was out and that, that didn't even enter into anything. But the thing is, is I was a mess. I was a mess. And she wrote an article once called when this newbie, when this old time lesbian dated a newbie. Yeah. Both of us, like even myself who work with people coming out later in life, I would, I would hesitate if something happened to my wife, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. date someone just coming out because there's just so much you have to go through. And, and, you know, a lot of times people come just coming out often date 
other people just coming out, which has its pluses and its minuses. And its minuses. Yeah, because I always say I got the crash course in being a lesbian because my wife had been out. And so every time some sort of internalized homophobia would come up, she would challenge me. So, I mean, she gave me that crash course. And and so I think that really, really like pushed me along so much farther, so much and, faster. And often yeah. when you do that with somebody, what happens next is they reject you because you've been too painful to be around for too long. Like They're like... This hurts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and so you have to have the right person on both sides of that equation and you have to have the right relationship chemistry and you have to have at least some sense of secure attachment in each person, because if you have, you know, anxious and, and avoidant attachment styles running around in the middle of all that, like it almost never goes well, almost never. (laughs) Well, I absolutely agree with you. I understand what you're saying totally. And and what I want to say is that we've worked really, really, really hard. And in fact, we just had a little argument today and we were like, we apologized and stuff. And I said, damn, awareness is freaking hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And it oh doesn't get easier. Because, because I'm like, oh God, I was such an ass. Okay. We are so off topic here. <laughs> I love talking to you. I, so I feel like I should go- apologize, but I'm also not sorry. <laughs> I know I'm like oh, so you went to seminary what uh-huh. like let's talk about that I went to Unitarian Universalist Seminary mm-hmm. and, and you and that, wanted to be a minister were you was it right after college or did you work for a couple of years I had five years be- between college and seminary I really wanted to think about it I had dated someone in seminary what when he was in seminary and mm-hmm. um I had been with him long enough to know what the process was like and to know how brutal it was. And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm never doing that. Mm-hmm. And then the call came and you know what that's like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can shut Absolutely. the door. You can try barring the door. You're just going to have a house with a broken down door because it is coming. Yeah. So, so when I decided to go to seminary, I wasn't worried particularly about my identity being a problem. I was actually much more concerned that my polyamory would be a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was some ice breaking that I did to like show up at a seminary event with two partners and mm-hmm. not the same two partners I have now, but that's another story. And to just get people used to the idea, you know, I think it probably served all of us really well in the end. To yeah, absolutely. Just have that experience. I've met, I've met other people, other people who are in seminary and the polyamorous. That that really, man, those uh the the committees on ministry that really like, especially went, people who are straight, mm-hmm. are like so flummoxed by all of that. I went before the committee on ministry, which is in, in our denomination, that's like the last gatekeeping mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to become a minister. And I was prepared to say, listen, y'all sent me to AYS when I was in eighth grade. And I learned that consenting adults doing consenting adult things is okay. And here we are. Um, but I never had to say that. Oh, wow. And now we're I'm so glad we're so far. They just didn't ask about it. They asked about everything else. I think they just they did, knew they didn't want to get into that mess. And but it, yeah, that I don't know. Maybe they would have gotten into some weeds, but they didn't. They chose that. I think they chose that it wasn't important to you as a minister. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still have definitely run into obstacles with regard to all of the pieces of my identity. I didn't actually start claiming trans until a few years ago, because mm-hmm. 
when I started being really clear that I was genderqueer, it was like 2004. Mm -hmm. And we didn't, and I was in seminary, but we didn't have an established space for people who are in between, right? We had, we had an established space and in between is not even, I don't even think of gender as a linear spectrum anymore. So that's not even really the right word. But at the time, that's what I wanted. I wanted a word for in between and we didn't have it. We had genderqueer, which, which felt good and right and fit in with all the other identity pieces of queerness, but we didn't have language for talking about, I don't want to transition to being a man that doesn't, I'm not a man and I'm not a woman. Mm-hmm. I'm this other, you know, secret third thing. And, and, and how do I name that? And even now I still struggle with how do I present that to the world? Like, how do I dress in a way that will, will convey my gender because gender is so important to the people around me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but being, but coming through like seminary and graduation and going into the parish and then being in the parish for four years and then coming out of the parish, there were so many instances where what I encountered was well-meaning people who didn't know how to enact their good intentions. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezanzel.com.